Sometimes getting a good night's sleep is not just hard to do, but it's no fun either. That's why the fine folks at Slumber Party Mattresses have invested the time and money to make every bedtime a better solution for somnolence. Whether you're dozing, napping, or snoozing, getting some shut-eye, or catching some Zs, Slumber Party has a scientifically enhanced mattress for you. Top options include the Catnapper, 40 Winks, the R.E. Emmington Steel, and the Eternal Rest. The last one can be converted to line your coffin, so even in the afterlife, you can sleep like there's no tomorrow. On top of that, each model is genetically modified to your specifically required repose. Never have another sleepless night and get a slumber party mattress today. Not long ago, there were only three television channels and the cheaply made family man comedy was king. Turning the dial would only give you another glimpse into a suburban nuclear family with a breadwinner husband, a stay-at-home wife, and the occasional talking horse. That is until 1964 when one show dared to take a glimpse into the lives of terrible monsters that lived next door. The Munsters premiered that September and, well, America has yet to recover. The Munster Hunter shuns the millions of hours of original shows that are available at the press of a button to take a look back at a 60-year-old comedy about a Frankenstein monster and his grotesque family. He, he reaches down he just grabs her by the butt and lifts her up. Yep. Yeah. Instead of opening the window... He punches through the window, which, I mean, this is your damn window, man. By the way, Eddie, he's trying to catch uh, the raven out of the the clock. Oh, is that yeah. what he's doing to feed the cat? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I was very disinterested, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> the Monster Hunters, available every Monday wherever you get your podcasts. Picture show with Austin and Phil Rude. I am Phil Rude. I'm the dad. I'm Austin Rude. I'm the son. Every week we watch a movie. We get on a microphone. We we sit on top of a microphone. On top of a microphone. And then we just talk. Like it's a giant or a tiny chair. Yeah. And we or it's a giant microphone. It didn't come with instructions. So you know? we're just trying our best. Great. Great for picking up farts and you know, stomach rumbling, so. That's right. Yes, that is what we do here. Uh, we sit on microphones and we talk about movies. That's the whole show. Sometimes I sit on a microphone while I watch the movie. And then all I gotta do is just start talking. That's insane. It's economical. Okay. You know, spend your time how you want to spend your you time. You know, I like to be efficient. And, right. uh, you know, I get a lot more done that way. Uh, but before we get into our movie for this week, what have we been up to what else have we been watching what have what have you been putting your eyeballs to uh i've been consuming my regular doctor who doctor but, who uh, okay this time it's classic doctor who mm. uh i've been i've toyed with the idea of like reviewing the whole show for a while like now like building uh, a twitter account that maybe reviews old who Maybe. I don't, I mean, I would you know. ever consider doing something like that? It, it seems really out there, but... Uh, <laughs> I'm sorry to throw a wild idea out I, here that you hadn't considered. I've been considering recording myself. I'm I, I, uh, bringing it to the next level. Real talk, behind, behind the scenes here. Okay. How many times have I suggested you 
do some short essays and we just put them on the feed. Well, that is the thing. Yes. Yeah. Uh, I, the thing is, I do want it to be short because like yeah. I can go on for like 40 minutes and no one wants to listen to that. So like, I, I want to keep it to like five to 10 minutes. Yeah. The Doctor Who fandom really isn't into like longevity, long no. a- analytical uh, breakdowns of of their favorite show or anything. I'm just going to throw this out there. I'm going to, I'm, I, I'm apologize for interrupting <laughs> you. If you are listening to this and you would like to hear Austin give any length of, I'm not going to put a time on it, but just if, if this is something you would be interested in hearing, reach out to us, reach out to Austin, let him know because I, I think this is something people would listen to. There's, more Whovians out there than than we realize, and I'm sure we overlap with some of them who would like to hear your thoughts on uh, Doctor Who, both uh, the new one, the girl, and the class, the classic Doctor Who, the I, one girl, the yes, g- Nurse Who. We all know what the real subtext is. It. All right, that, Dad. Before people <laughs> think you're serious and start attacking, I like our to show. think our audience knows us a little better than that. But I, I think, I think there's an audience for it, and and I know that you, you have had thoughts about Doctor Who since you were like ten years old, and you have just spat them out ad nauseum. All you have to do is just put a microphone in front of your face and and throw it out there. I, I think do, people would be interested to hear what you have to say. Do you hear this, guys? This is him trying to get me to have a different outlet so that he has he doesn't have to listen to it. Anymore. I that is not what I'm doing. I know very well. I but, yeah. Uh, uh, but it is one of those things that I've been toying with. Which uh, which doctor have you been watching this past week? The Sixth Doctor. Who is that? Uh, that's Colin Baker. Kaepernick? No, no. He's the doctor who took a <laughs> knee, takes a knee. <laughs> and was no, like... No, but he is the doctor that everyone hates. Oh, uh, weird. Because so, he's very... Collins? I don't know, but uh, his era was very progressive. It had a lot of bold stances. Colin Kaepernick? It, oh, this, it, is, this is... Uh, uh, I'm seeing I'm a saying. lot of parallels here just on the surface. And uh, they changed up the formula of the show a lot. And uh, despite being unpopular, it's the right thing to do. Yes. Like, it's is it Correct. the same? Okay. I, like... I don't know. There's there's more of a focus on science, which in a science fiction show you Weird. think would be obvious, but they tend to stray from it. Uh, well, Doctor Who's pretty magic. That's More right, than science. Yeah. I mean, honestly. For a show that's all about fighting Nazis, robot Nazis called Daleks, I mean, like, it sure. really is. You'd think it would be more progressive or the fan base, but, you know, when when it gets too overt or just for whatever reason, they, they really hate the Sixth Doctor, uh, he was fired from the show, and then the Thirteenth Doctor's era, they also don't like uh, for... It's like anti-progressive people who are Trekkies. That's it. It's like that don't you it. don't you understand like how progressive Star Trek politically and socially was? Like historically, like y- y- you don't understand what this show is about. If if this is you know like yeah, it's it's, it's wild to me. But uh, yeah, I'm rediscovering what makes that show good, and also just learning more about like past TV and because I've gone back and watched past doctor who before and been like 
well, this is weird. And I'm just right. realizing it's a different format. It's a different TV language. Uh, what, and I'm learning uh, to appreciate that. What time period is is the Sixth Doctor from? Uh, he's the early 80s. I oh okay, or late eighties. in the eighties. A lot of cocaine in the in the Sixth Doctor. Uh, <laughs> he's always got a line of white he's on got, his he's coat. Always, he's always got you missed a little. Uh, and yeah, um, okay. So so eighties, eighties science fiction. I'm trying to uh, line that up. It, with it like, probably lines up with Star Trek Next Generation. Uh, not quite. That was like later eighties, but this was this would be more like uh, Buck Rogers. Uh, Battlestar Galactica, original Battlestar Galactica, like yeah. early. That's like late seventies, maybe into early eighties. Um, and and I think so. Sh- yeah, that's that's kind of a different vibe. You know what I mean? Yeah, and and I think the show was also all those new shows were cropping up, and this is the show in its like twenty fifth season, right? And it's it's trying to keep up but it's not really it's also trying to maintain what it was and so you i i feel like looking back on it i'm like i can appreciate this but i think it was hated at the time because it the audience wasn't there for it yeah. or whatnot yeah that's um trying to maintain i mean it just sounds so radically different where when i think about buck rogers and uh bsg in that time period, these were things that were like directly influenced by Star Wars, which was brand new at the time. Like, yeah. so you have like a lot of like Star Wars knockoff stuff in the States. And then some stuff like what Trek was doing around that time. You saw like Trek three came out in the eighties in like early 82, 83. And that becomes much more like action oriented. So like science fiction became more of like an action genre yeah. So Doctor Who would be doing something completely different from that. And maybe it just wasn't in in the what every sci-fi fan's taste was kind of being influenced by at that time. I'm I'm sure I don't there's know. a lot of factors. I, I'm just, at yeah, play, I, I'm yeah. just I'm just guessing because I haven't I haven't seen that doctor, but you know it just I'm just trying to compare it to what uh what, what else sci fi was, was going on in the mainstream in the States at the time too. Because, yeah. You know. Uh have have you also been watching a show with a 60-year-old history or what what have you been up to? Uh this I week? did I did start uh rewatching Mad Men this week. Uh, okay. on IMDb TV. I'll talk about that more as I get further into it, but I am enjoying. I I love that show. Is this a full rewatch? Yeah, I just I just started. I'm going to I'm just casually, you know, like uh it's familiar. I know that I love the show and I love the characters, but it's a kind of unfiltered look at the, it starts in 1960 and it's, it's really, I, I like that it's, um, it's showcasing that time period without being preachy about it. It just shows you what it was and lets you come to the conclusion that everything was ridiculous. Yeah. I, um, I've always seen it as critical of that era, but not like... It's not preachy. No. Yeah. Uh, but I did watch something else from that time period uh, just yesterday, and I watched uh, last year's version of West Side Story. Really? I did. I uh, I saw it on HBO, and... Um, you know it's a musical, right? I, I do, and this is where I'm going to just flat out say, 
I don't know how to judge if a musical is good or not because I have a hard time with just the logic of the rules of a musical. It's its own reality. That's fair. It's it's almost uh, it, separate to movies. It, it is. It's it's such a different thing. I don't know how to judge it, but I did enjoy it. I I actually I'm like, oh my god, this thing is two and a half hours. Flew by, <laughs> flew by, and and I liked the songs. I knew a lot of the songs. I have seen the original one uh, when I was in like elementary school or junior high school, somewhere in that era. We watch it in the music class. The the. The was ni- this one the one you, the original you watched this week? No, I watched the Steven Spielberg remake. Oh, okay. The the the, the new one. The new one, yeah. Uh, which you are in, by the way. There's a character. Say what? There's a character in there where I did a double take when he came on screen. I'm like, oh my god, it's Austin. I am. Uh, <laughs> I'm excited to hear which character you're you, talking about. You are. Uh, I think his name is Baby Johnny. He's like the youngest gang member in the uh in the jets and he is that the guy who gets the he gets, nail he gets a nail ear? through his oh ear my God. he comes on screen and he is he is tall but not too tall and just very skinny and he's wearing a striped t-shirt with like a, a jacket over it and he has your haircut he he has your 100% build and when he came on screen I'm like what the what, is that Austin <laughs> Oh did I not God. tell you I was in that movie? <laughs> yeah, I was like, how did he keep this a secret from me? But no, um, uh, That's funny, though. I, I didn't really catch funny. that. But then again, sometimes you look at yourself and you don't recognize yourself. I, uh, But yeah, I, um, I know this movie has caught uh, some hate from uh, some people for various reasons. I didn't see any of that. I saw a very enjoyable musical that had a very tragic story to it. I know it's Romeo and Juliet. I know all of these sad things are going to be tied up in it. But I really I really got into it and I I'm not a musical person, but I really enjoyed I really enjoyed watching that. I I had a fun time when I watched it in the theater, uh but I left with a very mixed take on it. Like I really liked some things, really didn't like other things. Yeah. Uh and that's one of the ones that I want to like rewatch and kind of see sure. how it holds up. I think it looks great. Oh, it's stunning. Like the the sets and the just the whole look of the neighborhood and everything is it's beautiful. I the, I think they really did a great job production value. There's a whole Twitter thread of Guillermo del Toro. He like tweeted. Oh, he out, loved that movie. He he, yeah. he was like analyzing like the the ballroom dancing scene mm-hmm. and like all of that. Uh, the gymnasium, the the salt, uh, the, the where they have the big rumble yeah. where all the salt is, uh, all the empty lots and broken down buildings when they're fighting over the gun and they're running through like that condemned building and over the holes of just everything about it. I'm just sort of like it's a it, it it's a brilliant looking period set, and it also functions for these musical set pieces where they're dancing around all the stuff. Yeah, they work it really well. And, uh, yeah, I really, um, yeah. <laughs> all right, uh, uh, not on mic, but texting me right now in the next room, uh, Christy says, you say you're not a musical person, you also really appreciated Jesus Christ Superstar. I have been listening to Jesus Christ Superstar, uh, <laughs> very recently because you know it's playing somewhere here. And uh, we have a commercial, and that song comes on, and it just 
sets me up. Yes. You know, if someone wants to chime in from the other room, someone is she's welcome have to, get on to just mic. open up the door and just say whatever she's thinking instead of texting me <laughs> and interrupt. It's very distracting. But our, our virtual heckler here. I, I, I'm not traditionally a musical person. I like some uh, songs from musicals I'm finding more and more. and uh, But I don't like seek out musicals. And I don't know how to judge them. I, I get that though. Like, yeah. I, I don't know. There's, uh, there's certain musicals where I'm like, I really like you. But like, and I like all the songs in you, but... Ten in a row, like, I don't right. know if I want to sit down and do the whole thing. Like, you got to dedicate an afternoon to it. And there's always, there's always like, a a downer song in, like, every musical that you're like, oh, my God, it just drags so much at this one. You know what I mean? Like, but the, there's a, the good uh, ones make up, the good ones make up for it. I liked, um, I love the uh, America song when they're singing. Yeah. She wants to stay and he wants to go back to Puerto Rico. It's all the pros and, and they're, cons. They're, go, of... they're back and forth on it. Is It feels like you're watching people sing a marital spat as it goes through the street. And it's just so much fun. I, I really, surprisingly, I didn't even expect to like this movie that much. But I really, really did. I'm glad you liked it. And maybe now I, I can be open to suggestions. Suggesting a musical. I've never uh, shot down you suggesting musicals. You, you have musicals. not. You have no, not. Like, I, you are welcome to uh, bring whatever movie you want to for the show. We watch all kinds of stuff. And a lot of stuff that I didn't particularly think I would like that, you know, we talked about this with Marriage Story. And uh, Emma talked about, like, I didn't want to watch these movies. And then I was really glad that I did. So That's part of the reason you do a movie podcast. You, you to... kind of, not just to celebrate the things we know we like, you know. This is part of what being a movie fan is, is to be open to watching all kinds of different things. Yeah. Speaking of things that we watch. Speaking of things we watch that are kind of outside of our, our norm. Yeah. Um, this week... We watched the 1973 Japanese action movie, Lady Snowblood. This movie is about a young woman who is trained from birth to be an instrument of revenge, hunting and killing those who destroyed her family. Uh, okay, get ready, because I'm going to try some Japanese names here. So this film stars Miko Kaji as Yuki, or Lady Snowblood, Ko Nishimura as Priest Dekai, Noboro Nakaya as Bonzo, Yoshika Nakata as his daughter Kobu, and Toshio Kurosawa as Ryuri, who is the writer who kind of makes the manga about her. Yeah. And I did look him up and I could not find if he, anything that said that he was related to Akira Kurosawa, uh, the, the famous Japanese director who made like uh, Rashomon. Yeah, he made, it, um, uh, what's the one we watched? Uh, Hidden Fortress. Oh, okay. I, maybe it's just a common it, name. It, it or... could be. It's like Smith in Japan. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> this is directed by to, uh, Toshia Fu, Fujita. I'm sorry. Let me try that again. It's directed by Toshia Fujita. With a screenplay by Norio Osada and Miko Kaji, who plays Lady Snowblood, also sings the theme song 
uh, Shura Nohama, which means Flower of Carnage. That is so awesome and that she sang that song. I didn't... I, I didn't know that either until wow. I, I looked everything up. Uh, and, what a talent. Um, Quentin Tarantino used that song in Kill Bill. I've, I've heard that song which before. Which kind of kicked up her musical career. She all of a sudden was, like, charting. Uh, you know, because Kill Bill soundtrack is great. And it, you know, sold a lot of copies. It, it got a lot of listens. And it's sort of like 30 years later, put her, her singing career back into, like, the zeitgeist. Wow. Uh, and, and, it, and I've never seen Kill Bill, but I've heard that I'm, song I'm sure. probably yeah. because of the movie. Like it's it gotten kicked around. Somewhere. Yeah. It's, um, but, yeah. Uh, just a disclaimer here. Uh, we are going to talk about Quentin Tarantino because I can't talk about this movie without talking about Kill Bill because this so clearly influenced Kill Bill. I'm I'm sure it did. I just I can't talk much on that. You haven't like, seen it, right? Yeah, I I recognize though uh, because I first off I really love this movie and so I was going through Wikipedia and I I found like. This is a very important movie. Like, it's been... It spawned sequels. It was remade uh, by a different really? name. Yeah. Uh, just, like, ten years later, there's... Uh, in Japan? Yeah, It was, in, it was like Japan, a Japanese movie um, again? They... It's, like, the same exact plot. They've just changed the names. And it's based off the manga, which this whole story is based on. Yeah, you, uh, you told me that after... I think you had been like researching it right after we watched it uh and i didn't know it was from a manga and it, it makes me want to like go find that it's it's sort of like at the same what we're going through now with comic book adaptations over the last 20 years it seems like the 70s were full of of things like that in japan where they were adapting things like lone wolf and cub and uh and lady snowblood they were taking these manga things that were these manga titles that were known, yeah, uh, especially in Japan, and they were making movies of them, and I think that's really interesting to see, like. And, and similar to how comics in America happened, like manga was so cheaply produced then and still is, still, yeah. and like that is why it spread so much. And so, like, this was an insanely popular manga before the movie was made, which basically meant that this movie was set up to be a success. And it's sort of like a meta thing in the movie when they, the guy makes the manga of Lady Snowblood. Right, the character and, in it is And that becomes it. a plot point in the movie is now she's like a celebrity. Uh, so it's, it's a really weird um, sort of like full circle kind of thing. It, you know, like the story becomes very famous. It, it is, and I actually, I, I want to go and read the manga simply because I think this is a great story. I felt very emotionally invested to it, but also I feel like with all of the time jumps that are in this, like, I feel like it would play out more better as a TV series or a manga, which it originally was, and that makes a lot of sense. Where it's broken into chapters. Yeah, uh, and, little, and you yeah. kind of get more room to breathe while she's targeting her victims or whatever, and, like, you get this whole world built, and you right. kind of get more of that. And that's where, um, I, I think, because that's a very Tarantino thing, is the time jump, too. Like, 
he, he like non-linear stories. He's sure. al- he's always done that. But with Kill Bill, I think what he did really well in that because it's the same plot basically. It's this woman is uh, she's an assassin. Now we're going to talk about a completely different movie. <laughs> yeah, uh, she's an assassin, and she is uh, killed. She leaves her life as an assassin, and then the rest of her crew comes and hunts her down, and leaves her for dead. But she comes back, and she hunts them down one by one, trying to get to Bill, who's the leader. Sure. So that's the whole thing, and it has these flashbacks of her training montage with an old Japanese master. You know, like with and. They all lead up to, like, these sections of the movie. Each section is her finding one and killing them. And where he did that, he made it two volumes. He made it two movies. So it did give it, like what you're saying, more room to breathe. Like, this is a short movie, Lady Snowblood, an hour and a half, basically. It is, and it feels longer. And she hunts down, (laughs) she has to hunt down, like, four people in that time. And it's just like... It is so compressed, plus the back and forths, it's a little bit jarring. And and there's even, like, cop-out kills, like, where she's like, oh, this guy, she tracks him down for, like, a quarter of the movie, and then she's like, oh, he's already dead, and then later she has to find him and kill him again. So right. it, it's like an extra chapter that, like... But there's, yes, there's also other parts of it that are... I think stretched out a little more when she tracks down uh, Bonzo, the, the the first guy, the old man who's like sick and he's in bad with like gambling and stuff like that. Yeah, and living like that was like really sort of stretched out, sort of the biggest emotional part of the movie, honestly. Um, but then everything else is a, almost to make up for that. It feels like they condensed all the other sections down uh, in order to fit that in, where it's just sort of like, you should have just kind of made the movie a little bit longer and gave it a little bit of room to breathe because that that middle part where she's hunting down Bonzo and she gets to know his daughter and stuff like that is like, that part is so interesting to me. It's like, for me, it's like the emotional center of the movie. I I, I think that's where I started getting connected with the movie because, like, the first beginning of it is just all exposition. It's yeah. random time jumps, whatever. Uh, that's kind of where you feel this journey. And then the next, kind of that second half of the middle is just a lot of ups and downs. Uh, and I feel like those are the rush, rushed emotional emotional beats. Can I say those words? I think you'll get them there. But, um... <laughs> Yeah, I, I think there weren't a lot of emotional beats in those other parts. It was like the the woman uh, that she was hunting down, you know, just sort of shows up and it's like the confrontation is right there. And then, you know, that's over. She finds her hanging there, which is a, the greatest transition in in when she's her body's hanging there. And they're just standing around it. And then like a curtain falls. Like it's a play. You know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, I thought that was the end of the movie. <laughs> and it's just like, okay, act two is over. Now we're moving. It, it, was just, it was somehow like, there's things that exist outside of this movie that are like, oh, it's not a movie anymore. It's a play. And now, now we're back to being a movie. 
Right. Or it's a manga. It's, It's right. It's such an interesting presentation of this story. Because it steps away from being a movie sometimes. But but none of that is like... I don't mean that in a bad way. I think it's really, really yes, cool. N- none of it turns out to be jarring, which is strange. Right. It all seems to sort of fit the the bizarre logic of this movie. And, and I feel like one of the elements that also adds to that is the intense, ridiculous gore. Uh, like, yes. Like just blood spurting, the blood, like the blood water. fountains. Yeah. yeah. Also, also a Kill Bill thing. I'm, I'm sure, Quentin Tarantino in general, he has a lot of blood in his work. But that uh, was the thing when Kill Bill came out. Like, people were like parodying this and talking about how ridiculous it was. And it then you know like I think since then the the twenty years since then, people have sort of found Lady Snowblood. I had never heard of this movie until a few years ago. Yeah. And people, I think, are slowly finding it and going, oh my God, the, the fountains of blood in Kill Bill makes so much sense now. Like, well, it's it's just a direct reference to this movie that, um, that he loves and he wanted to pay tribute to this movie. I'm, I'm sure it is. And I don't want to speak ill of people, but it, I feel like you're not good at understanding movies if you need to be like, oh, it's a reference to understand that this is a stylized form of, like, it's not trying to look realistic, the gore. like Right. I think it, it comes off as a stylistic choice, no matter if you know the reference or not. And that's so much of, like, what Tarantino does in general, is he just references other movies. And that's mostly for him. Yeah. But he works it in there to where if you don't get the reference, it doesn't matter. The, it the it still works. It still works in the style and the story he's telling. But there was, I think there was a big awakening when um, it was uh, uh, film spotting, uh, film spotting SVU. It was a spinoff show of the NPR film spotting uh, podcast. Yeah. Uh, but they were the first people I ever heard talk about this movie. And then I found it and I watched it and this was I don't know six seven years ago and it was it was one of those like sort of lightning bolt moments where you go oh my god this was a very influential film to people who saw it to, yeah, you, to filmmakers who, who would take this forward you can see the connection yeah and and it's one of those things it's it's kind of like finding like um old John Woo movies from Hong Kong stuff like The Killer and going oh shit, I see how this influenced these other, you know, going forward, how this influenced American action. The American action directors who saw the Hong Kong stuff and became, like, very influenced by it. The guy who does the uh, gun kata stuff, it's like the Matrix. Uh Um, I can't remember his name, but, uh, you know, the stylized gunplay and stuff like that. You can see the directors who saw Asian movies asian cinema before anybody else was able to see you know had really had a way into that world because i think that was kind of groundbreaking for sure they were doing something completely different than the rest of the world so it, it just is like when you go back and i think even by today's standards tarantino aside this is a completely weird movie even by today's standards oh for sure i think if an american studio made this movie exactly the same way People would have their minds blown. 
and be like, what is, you know, like this, <laughs> this is a crazy movie because it's full of time jumps and weird logic and steps out of being a movie. Um, and a character who says almost nothing through the whole, like a main character who's just sort of like this silent machine, like a Terminator or something. Are, are you talking about Lady, Lady Snowblow? Snowblow. Yeah, yeah. She's, she's almost a non-person. She's she's very stoic, but I kind of think that's what the movie is about. Like yes. the the whole thing they say it several times. I can't remember the term that they give her, but they're like, "You are this the As- Asura, the Asura." The, yes, it's like uh, a demon, an like an avenging demon yeah. of revenge. Right, you are not a human being. Your life is meaningless. They tell her. Right, your only goal is to kill these people to the point where when one of them is already dead. She feels sad simply because right. she wasn't able to kill him. This was my purpose. Right. But when you think about it... Two of the, them. Yeah. There the, were there were two of them that she was robbed of killing. Yes. The first was a fake out, right. though. But, uh... Like, the whole point is to have these people dead. It doesn't matter how. Like, she's trying to see justice, but she kind of forgets what she's there for. Because she just sees herself as this instrument of revenge. And all that ultimately leads to is, spoiler alert, her own destruction. Right. And uh, because of another cycle of revenge. Yeah, because she she started a new person on the cycle of revenge. And it's never going to end. Which is uh, Kill Bill also. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Not the ending. The very beginning of Kill Bill, she kills somebody and... Uh, that person's daughter witnesses it. And there's talk of if he makes Kill Bill 3, that's what it's going to be. Of course. Uh, uh, this is the rumors of his 10th movie. have been floating around for 20 years. But it's great and also taken from this taken from this movie. It, it, I think it's a direct reference to this movie. And I think, it, I think it's a, a great twist that plays on that sort of emotional middle section when she gets to know uh, that woman. Yeah, I, I think that's why that's so fleshed out, yeah. is it ends up coming around. It's that, you know, George Lucas talks about poetry, you know, the rhyming of, of things, things that come back around. Yeah, oh, is that why the twin sons are at the end of this movie? <laughs> yes, but this is it done uh, in a very, and, and this was pre-Star Wars, which is, you know, like, uh, it, we know George Lucas is very influenced by samurai movies and stuff, so it is sort of like the same kind of rhyming thing of coming back around, but... You know, this was clearly planned instead of made up over three movies until it finally hit. <laughs> he finally found the rhymes at the at the end. The, this one was rhyming from the start. Absolutely. And, and actually, speaking of unplanned things, this movie got a sequel, and yes, I don't know what it's about, but I feel disappointed almost. Like I don't know what there is left to tell. I like the ambiguous ending here of we don't know if Lady Snowblood is going to survive. I like this being the story. I kind of feel like a continuation. Uh, from the synopsis I read, it's oh you her, have it. okay good her taking on someone's mission of love. Uh, this man wants revenge on his you know dead bride or something, uh, and so she sets out to infiltrate this crime unit uh but it's not her story of revenge anymore and 
I feel like that's just like, oh, we want her to be cool and kill more it's, stuff. It's a uh, yeah, cash grab sequel, but... Um, so, so I do think I want to watch it to confirm that suspicion, but... Uh, I am going to watch it. Um, I'm... But I know I, what you I know what you're saying. I like this as this because this did have such a clear statement about uh, the pursuit of revenge. And even um, when when they think they're all dead, you know, when when the woman is hanging, you know, she's hung herself or so they think. And then, you know, the curtain closes and that should be the end because that's all the. That's all the, um, that's her mission. The, the, the assailants. Right. And there she's with, uh, the guy, the writer, and he's says something about like, can you have a a normal life now? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Like, or is that even possible? And all of these flashbacks have shown that she, you know, she could like it's impossible for her to have a normal life because she's almost not a person. She's never had a normal from life. from the time she was born out of revenge and just trained from the time she was a little child to be a killing machine. So I mean it's like she wouldn't even know how, where to begin to have a a regular normal life, which is I think just this great statement on like this is what revenge does to people. It consumes you and you lose your humanity. And to to the point where she's not she's not even avenging something that happened to her. She's avenging something that happened to her mother who she never knew. Right. Which is like this this you know, these concepts of honor and, and things like that, but it's just been twisted and perverted to the point where it's sort of like for your revenge, you're robbing your child of having a life you're basically killing your own child to get revenge for you how awful is that it's it, when yeah when I, you, you break it down it's a really clear kind of uh theme of this movie everything else is just dressing around that and a and a poetic way of telling super that, cool that dressing story. but oh, yeah for sure uh and also like the worst thing is she had the child specifically to carry Specific, out the revenge. Right. This wasn't like the child was born and she was like, okay, you have to carry this out. She made this child happen. Like she had a child for an awful reason. And just like, right. It's such a cruel way to bring someone. She into had sex world. with all the prison guards until she got pregnant and she wanted a boy. And then she got a baby girl. I was like, oh, okay, the girl will do it then. <laughs> and it's just like a, it's such a it's such a strange and specific like backstory, but it informs everything about the character going forward. And and in a way that is something that people do, not like literally, but people do force their ideas onto their children and they also what do you mean son of mine who's on my podcast (laughs) all right and and also i've robbed you of any sort of a career that will make money uh no you have to carry on this podcast legacy doomed to be a starving artist i forgot what i was saying now um i uh you said people do that 
to their children where they put, I think you were, right, were you like, saying something about like, are you talking about like legacies, like legacy careers and things like that, where it's like, oh, I'm a firefighter and all my sons are firefighters and all, you know, like, or career military families or things like that. Yeah. And even like more abstract, just kind of in general pressures are put on to kids. Like you need to have all A's or this oh, yeah. or that. Like, and, and also just people, the whole revenge thing, like let it go. I mean, what happened in this movie is horrific. I'm it's, not like, it's pretty terrible. Yeah. yeah. I, but to create more damage with getting your justice, is it really justice? Right. That's kind of the question this is asking. At, like, at, at what point are you doing more damage to your family than your, uh, than what was originally inflicted on your family? You know what I mean? Like it, it just becomes like this, this cyclical black hole that, that just eats everything. And I, I think that's the, I think that's the bigger point this movie is, is making. I'm talking about revenge. You're talking, I mean, that's yeah. not the, the straight A's or you have to go to college thing. But I mean, there are people who get to a, a certain point in their adult life and realize, oh, I went to college and pursued this career and married this person and had these kids and I didn't want any of these things. And now I'm stuck in the middle of this life that I'm dissatisfied with. Clearly, that's not murdering people and things like that. But that happens. That happens all the time. Right. Like, and and that's these stories are metaphors for bigger things. For, so for, for real world uh, ideas. Yeah. I feel like that's right on the money. And I'm actually just now having a thought that might be completely bogus, but I'm going to go with it. Because uh, I think the writer might be a foil to Lady Snowblood. Because he comes from the perpetrator. He's the perpetrator's son. Right. And he is not going for revenge. He's doing the opposite of what his father wants. But it still leads to his demise. So maybe that's a message about how whether you follow the the parent's path of get justice for me or you, or you stray away. away from it. You're still stuck in it. You, that, yeah, there may be. There's something about, uh, about legacy. Maybe it's a bigger point about just legacy in general, like. Consuming. It, it can consume you whether you want it to or not. So I hope you're born into a good one, you know, kind <laughs> of thing. Um, but I think there's a, I think there's a lot to be said about, about a lot of, things with regards to that and the bigger idea of like the passage of time because i'm going to go back to uh to bonzo is when she catches up to him you know he was this young gangster making money and killing people and now he's a broken old man it's at a point where when she finally catches up to him i i feel like she, I don't, I don't think it's saying this specifically, but I kind of get this idea of like, it doesn't matter if she kills him. He's dead essentially already. He's not a threat to anybody. He's just a shell of what he used to be. 
and she almost kills him just because that's her mission and she has to because she's been programmed to but she kind of understands like this is so unnecessary life has beaten this guy like I, like he's just he's nothing now he's just a shell yeah i i sense like disappointment yeah when she's she's like oh, well i guess i gotta this almost is like a pity this is, this is yeah I, pity is a great word because i i think that is it she takes pity on him she feels bad for his daughter you know and she's like come stay in tokyo with me if something happens yeah you know and you know she's trying to be kind to her um but i do i get the sense that like she doesn't want to kill him because it's so pointless but she but she has to she doesn't know another way right she, she knows that's what she was put in motion to do yeah and and it's it's a bizarre scene because it, i did feel like um i had only seen this once before so i didn't remember a lot of the details but that you, I did get this idea of like, is she going to let him go? Is she just going to let him like go and die of old age? I, I felt that too. I, I was unsure how that scene was going to play but out. She takes him to the beach and she explains who she is. And it's just sort of like, oh, she's going to do it. But it was, it was sad. It was a sad kill. Yeah. I, 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 that's what I felt anyway. I didn't, I didn't think there was like any victory. It, it was like hollow. You know Hollow what I mean? is a good word for she it. She yeah. kind of just is like, yeah, okay, this one's done. I trained my whole life for this, you know? Right. Um, but I, I think that also is, uh, is an interesting uh, contrast to, like, the other two that were actually, like, like, murdering killers still. Like, very dangerous people. Like the the older woman and uh, that writer's father, right? I I mean the the writer's father. He even got like he's mixed up in like <laughs> yes, he has like, a lot going the on. The military yeah, right. and opioids and all kinds of weird arms deals, and it kind of gets a little bit into like the influence that America had. Yeah, the American on... military is at that masquerade ball. Um, right. And it's just sort of like, oh, wow, that's really kind of interesting. But, well, because that's... America had a hand in... Right. Uh, ...getting uh, people in Asia addicted to opioids. To and... o- opium. Straight opium, straight yeah. opium, yeah. Um, uh, and so he also had a hand in that. And, and it, they're trying to modernize Japan at that at that time where the American military was coming over and like, you know, hunting down like the last of the old clans and trying to, you know, be a trading partner with Japan. Yeah. Essentially. I like col- colonization the, more or less. There's some symbolism, uh, where he falls from the balcony, finally dead. And he pulls, he pulls the, the Japanese, Japanese flag, flag down. with him. Right. But in that same shot. And I, I'm sure it's deliberate. The American flag is right there next to Japan. A a fifty state American flag as well. There's um Oh, oh, it wouldn't have been at that time, would it? No, not even close. <laughs> That's funny. Uh there's a, a bunch of I found it uh Oh, I'm not gonna be able to find it now. But they there is a, a piece of trivia on here. Oh, here it is. Uh this film is set in the nineteenth century. 
However, during the masquerade party, there are various modern-day flags on display, including but not limited to Pakistan, created in 1947, Australia, created in 1901, and the 50-star flag of the United States, introduced in 1960. And this would have been uh, 1873, I think. Okay. Uh, I didn't realize it was set that far back. Oh, no, I, uh, was... I guess it would be about 1890s. It would be... Uh, yeah, that's kind of what I thought. She's born in 1873. That's what was the prison part. Oh, and so okay. then, like, give or take 20 years later. But, yeah, it's... Um, but you're right. The symbolism is there. Like, it is the idea. Uh, and, and a really interesting idea, I think, to have him not just be, like, an opium smuggler... This would have been, I think, about the time that Japan stopped being a closed nation. And it would have opened up all this black market. Like, he's he's stealing, uh, or he's selling guns. Yeah, he's, he's, an he's, a, he's a gun runner, and, and, and the opium trade is in full swing, and American colonization is basically taking place in Japan. And when you think about it, I don't know much about the history here, but before that, the original crime... That started everything was happening during the rebellion era where uh, the draft was kind of forcing people into the war. And right. then uh, they had created a scam uh, to get people out of the draft or something. I, yes, it was it was like they were they didn't have power to get people out of the draft. Um, but they would, you know, if you. You, they would say you could basically buy your way out of being drafted. And so they would take money. And then when uh, people from the government showed up to draft the young men, they, they were the men in white, they would kill them. And that's what happened was they mistook uh, Lady Snowblood's mother's uh, husband for because he's wearing a, a white suit white, yeah. for a government conscript and, and murdered him and their entire family. And it's just sort of like, good Lord, overkilled that a little bit. But uh, it was very much. But again, like he started there and he worked his way up like he was the the themes of uh, corruption, I sure. guess. Are, yeah. Are prevalent throughout. Is your people who are uh, these are criminals who are taking advantage of uh political and military situations in japan and it showed that he was still doing that and you, you know like and 20 also, years later and specifically to take advantage of the poor people the right. working class who are already at a disadvantage exploiting that you know uh if this was happening today um he would just be a government contractor and he would be sponsoring cable news channels He'd be a he'd be a war profiteer, and it would all be completely legal. But um, you know that's neither here nor there when we're talking about this movie. But still true. But still true. It makes it no <laughs> less true. Um, yeah, I don't. Uh, we're all over the place with this. Uh, but... We are, but I have a point. Please. Uh, I forgot to mention. Uh, I wanted to talk about like the camera moves in this movie because. Uh, 90% of this movie is taught, is shown in, like, still frames, uh, or, like, uh, very slow-moving yeah, arts. Yeah, a lot of slow and, pans, yeah. And so, what, uh, there are things that don't fit that, and they really jump out at you, uh, and I think they're cool, like, uh, 
the intense zooms like uh you were talking about yeah. her first kill on the beach uh and it zooms in uh or zooms out like crazy right. wide crazy real fast. fast uh they also have like real shaky cam uh that's kind of shown in her introduction scene uh like where it shows a focus on a person but like the camera is beyond shaky it's like you can't even see what's going on right uh and then they also have again the super still shots where there's no pan no nothing it's just like usually a really cool composition and it's just still yeah and i don't know i feel like those are very integral to the film language of japan at the time i think it's or to this director but i've seen them before in other japanese films uh and media so like i feel like there's a connection there's a lot of uh japanese art and uh asian art in general where it is a focus on like it like wide still shot like the subject of it could be a person and a person in a forest, let's say. But just because the subject is there doesn't mean it's, like, big and in the middle of the frame. It can just be a person who's real small in the corner of this painting uh, of a forest. And it's just, like, this this almost style that's unique to, like, old Japanese art. Um, you see it in uh, Stan Sakai's comic... Usagi Yojimbo, Usagi Yojimbo, the the samurai rabbit. You ever read that? Yeah, I have. Yeah, there you you'll see like a lot of establishing shots, and they're very reminiscent of Japanese art. Uh, Stan Sakai is a Japanese American, um, and it, it, a lot of that comic has to do with Japanese history, uh, told through like samurai animals and things like that. But um, same kind of thing. I feel like there is a that is a very Japanese composition thing to do. Whether and to see it in film is really interesting because you're like, oh, it's not unique to painting. Yeah, like it's, it's in everything. It's this, it's this very Japanese sort of way of framing things, even in a movie. And and I love it. it it's great. It brings yes calmness and to like the zooms or the shaky cam such intensity that's when they that hammer it, it home the calmness. Yes. yeah and i don't know there's kind of a zen to it where like it draws you in or shakes you up like you really feel connected to the movie yeah there's like a calmness to a lot of this movie and then it's broken up with like just mad chaos you know there's a there's a real back and forth to this when action's going on it's really going on but then the rest of the time, it's just sort of like a lot of talking, a lot of standing around, you know, this even is, when yeah. they're framing people talking, it's just sort of like, it. it's not like, like the gambling scene, let's say, when she's at the gambling house mm -hmm. and it's kind of panning around. And I feel like anytime you're going to show like Americans gambling and you're going to just watch them play for that long. It's going to build suspense. It's there to be like some kind of weird slow burn. And that's not what's happening here at all. It's just like these long shots of them gambling. And it's just kind of interesting. I don't know if it's like, because culturally I don't know the game and I'm trying to figure it out. I don't, because there is a lot going on of you. They show her watching things. 
But it, I never felt like it was building up to some point where it was going to boil over. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I, it wasn't boring. Like, it, it's, it's... Because she was still the focus of it. It right. never switched to be the focus is on the gambling in this game. But it you know what just... I mean? Like, in, in an American movie, you would feel like the tension start to build up. You know, it, it would it, be like intense. It would be the, shots the right the way they're zooming in on people. And here you're just watching them gamble. You're watching the the guy in a diaper with tattoos just start shouting things. I'm like, I don't know what the hell's going on here. But you're right. They always are focusing back on her, back on Bonzo, back on the other guys across the table. But it's not like a tension thing. It's it's the weirdest thing. I don't know if I'm probably not explaining it very well. No, I. But I, it's not. It should be boring, but it's not. Just based on what we're used to. You know, it feels like there's no point to this thing, but there's totally a point. They're just getting you there. Right. It, it's kind of like we're just an observer in the room passively. Yeah. yeah. As her. Just kind of like right. seeing, just looking for him. You're not invested in anything. No. You're just kind of watching. Yeah, It's just there. It's like people watching at a mall or an airport or something. Yeah. And just watch people and be like, huh, this is going to go down. Okay. <laughs> I don't um, know what's happening, but yeah. The other uh, camera stuff I, I wanted to talk about uh, and piggyback on this point is when they would project something like on, there's a part where she's walking through like flowers and then they, they kind of focus in on the bottom half of her kimono and then they're projecting like a flashback of her as a little kid on the kimono there's these weird like camera tricks that they're doing where it's kind of like and that transitions into like her being you or the part of the prison where they just show like the wide shot of the prison and then the shadows down in the corner would sort of light up and it would be her mother like having sex with a guard and then it would fade back into shadow and then the light would come up again and it would be you know the same thing but with a different guy you know and it was just sort of like showing this passage of time in a interesting way where the the wide shot stayed the same but this passage of time was going on down in the corner and just these weird like sort of shots within shots that they would do i I, I thought it was a great style stylistic choice to make and it really sort of made this visually interesting it's funny because i kind of I didn't realize that. Like, yeah. it didn't stand out to me. Like, I know what scenes you're talking about, but well, I think I, that's what's cool about time, it, though, is I that just, it's not like, "Hey, look at this." It's just like this is just what we're doing. Yeah, I you thought know? it was cool transitions. It's not show offy at all. No, and it's not as overt as like the when the curtain falls. It's it's right. a more right. subtle overlapping. Oh, your focus is here. Now it's here. Now it's over here. Now it's over here. Yeah. And um and the other the last visual thing I want to point out is the first guy she kills in the movie. Um where it's in the snow and like the guy's in the rickshaw. Yeah. He's like the local it's gangster. It's like her introduction scene. Right. That is uh it's clearly like done on a sound stage. And you have like the street of the town and the snow falling, but there's no sky. There's nothing behind it. It's all just black. So it looks like a like a theater set it looks like a a stage you know how like when you're on stage in a theater and the walls go up and then it stops and there's like nothing yeah you can just it looks like that and but it's 
um, it's sort of like a theater or it's sort of composed the way like a graphic novel panel would be like a, especially a manga black and white manga where there would just be nothing above the buildings i'm sure yeah and it just looks so cool and and it just sort of like lets you know right off the bat like this is a a completely stylized movie from the way it looks to the way that blood is going to shoot out of these bodies when she when she sticks them and that's i, I that is such a cool scene of her, you know, flipping around. She's got the umbrella and the, and the sword and just just slicing people up and I think it's I think it's a great way to bring her into this movie. It it is. It kind of tells you everything you're going to see yeah from the get-go. Yeah. It is one of like three introductions that the film gives. Uh but I I yeah. think it's the best one. Well, they yeah, they bring in um you know, it's like the the introduction of her mother. And then like flashback and flashback and a flashback in that. Um, and, and then it's like the introduction of Lady Snowblood, the baby. And now it's the introduction of Lady Snowblood, the adult. And then we're going back and it's Lady Snowblood, the little girl in the barrel that gets kicked down the hill yeah. a hundred thousand times. <laughs> um, but it, it all, it all works for me. I'm, I'm not, I, I agree. Those are redundant and can be a little bit tedious, but honestly, I think this movie is so cool. I have a hard time. I have a hard time honestly criticizing this movie and making anything stick. That is very fair. Like, I I think, and th- that was kind of like in the very beginning. I was like, oh, we've kind of seen this baby thing before. Like right. they flash back to it multiple times or whatnot. But by halfway through the movie, I didn't care. Yeah. I was like, okay, yeah, I'm fully invested in this. It somehow all worked, even if it was a little jarring or uh, repetitive. Yeah, yeah, repetitive. I think is the be- better word. But I, uh, I, I, yeah, I do. Again, I'm I'm giving this movie a, a little bit of a pass. I mean, a it's from a completely different time period. This movie's fifty years old almost. Um, you say it came out seventy three. 74 in the States. Yeah. So um, and, and just a really different style of filmmaking than we were used to seeing then. And I think now, I still think this movie is pretty cutting edge when you hold it up. I mean, it looks like a seventies movie for sure, but it, I, th- I think this is a starkly different kind of action movie than we're used to seeing than what is being made right now. It, it stands out as unique for to sure. the time and in general. Yeah. Which I think is kind of just the definition of a classic. I mean... Just something wholly unique that influences other media and, and that stands ho- out. holds up over time. Like, yeah. this movie was... Clearly looks like it was made in the, the 70s. The production... You, you but, can tell when they're holding, like, things to squirt the blood sure. or whatnot. But it's all... You can overlook it. You to watch see. this movie in context, like you should watch all movies in context. Oh, it was you know King Kong was made in 1933. Of course, that gorilla looks fake. But let me buy into the world of 1933 and the limitations of this movie. And this is the same thing. I think this movie holds up really, really well. I, I would, I think it helps that it, it's a period piece. You're not going to be distracted by like 70s techno. Oh my God, look at Lady Snowblood talking on a rotary dial telephone. 
the the it's... disco scene where she <laughs> she pulls a sword out of her afro. Right? It's not like watching a seventies exploitation movie in the states where it's like, um, or even like a Bruce Lee movie from the seventies. You know that like something like Enter the Dragon that took place in that time period, and you know, um, which is also a classic, I would say. Yeah. But I think this movie is is kind of timeless in its own way. I think this movie carries forward really well. And while I think more and more people are finding it and watching it and realizing the influence it's it's had, um, it's one of those things. I'm really glad it's on HBO Max because I want people to see this movie. It's like, whether you like Kill Bill or not, I, I think you know, divorce yourself from that and just watch this movie because this is a really, really unique piece of film. And the fact that it is Japanese, so it comes from a completely different style of filmmaking, I think helps it be unique too. I I think it should be divorced from Kill Bill. I, I almost feel like that's not a detriment, but like, like, it shouldn't be compared to what it inspired. This right, is right. incredible as it is. Man, this, this movie really ripped off Quentin Tarantino, huh? Oh, <laughs> 20 boy. years before. Uh, but no, no I, I'm i just saying, like, it's hard. If you've seen Kill Bill uh, and you know that movie, yeah. and it is a great movie. Like, I really I really enjoy it, especially the, the first volume of that. Um, and it has a few of the best-looking scenes I've ever seen. But if you know that movie, there's no way you can watch Lady Snowblood and not be not thinking of it, it because I'm you sure. just you just see it. You just see the DNA, and I think that's cool too. It's kind of like when you are into a band, and then you read an interview, and you're they're like, "Who are your influences?" And you go, you know, there was a ton of bands that I was into that were like '70s bands when I was in high school, and a lot of them were, you know, oh, who you listen to? Oh, we we loved Cream. I'm like, who is Cream? And I went and found Eric Clapton's group, you know, and it's just like, oh my God, I see the influence and I see their own thing. And they're both, it's great to see it from all those different angles. And and, that's how I found the mountain goats. Like, yeah. Okay. I, I just found, oh, a bunch of people that, that that I musically inspired by this or creatively inspired by it. And you, you go, the mountain goats are great. And. It's so cool to see that pathway. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah. I I now want to see Kill Bill. I never didn't want to see Kill Bill. I just never like went out to see it. It's uh, a it, honestly, I don't watch Kill Bill a lot because it's like four to five hours of movie. Like you have to block out. Well, some time. yeah, and uh, and I would want to do that. I would want to watch. Because I know it was released like that, Volume 1 and 2. Right? Uh, it was released separately, like six months apart or something. Oh, like oh. I thought they but were together. They get they get packaged together a lot. Okay. But um, I, I think you would, I think you would honestly like Kill Bill quite a bit. Because it is, it is a lot of this, clearly by its influence. But it also is kind of, it's, it's an influence of a lot of things. And it also just kind of has its own language on top of that. And it is a really interesting revenge movie. All right. I, I think you, I think you would appreciate it. Um, but this movie, do you give it a big recommendation as I, much as I do? One hundred percent. Cool. I, I actually, uh, funnily enough, I've been 
recording uh i have a little chart uh like an excel chart uh nerd i know nerd of of all of the movies i've seen this year and uh this one is the first 10 out of 10 uh oh cool and there are a lot of 9 out of 10s. This is the first 10 out of 10. I, I think it deserves it. We should start a letterboxed account. Um, where you... That would be, you yeah. Like track. I have thought about doing it before, uh, just for myself. Uh, but we could make a we could make an account. Um, the, the arguments that for, would be had. For the, sh- the, the show, uh, just to put our own, like, reviews. And then we could each put things we see individually in there as well. But... Um, maybe we should do that. Um, not to, you can keep your spreadsheet going too, but, uh, I will, but no, (laughs) that would be fun. Yeah. Um, but yeah, just as a way to, uh, another way to bring people into the conversation, I think that might be kind of cool, but, um, yeah, Lady Snowblood is on HBO max. It's under the, uh, uh, Criterion banner, I think, or TCM. I One of the it two. Was Turner Classics. It, it, it's it's it has a Criterion release, so if you want to go buy the Criterion uh, Blu-ray, you can do that, which is cool. And I'm and maybe doing. It. Um, I, I think it's always good to do that with something you're interested in. Sure. To, show to have companies. a to have a hard copy yeah. that you really do own. You know, like yeah. you you can't just take this off the service or whatever, but um. But no, it, this this is a, a a wholly unique movie, and I I really recommend if you have HBO Max and an hour and a half to kill, and you want to see something really unique and interesting, sit down and watch Lady Snowblood. I'm gonna be watching the sequel. Uh, oh, you're off next week, right? Yeah, we could hang out and we could turn the sequel on one Spring day. Spring break, uh, yeah. Japanese movie session. Let's do it, man. But um. Yeah, check it out. Uh, Lady Snowblood's great. I'm glad. I'm glad I I dropped it on the table here, and we could yeah. we could take it apart. That was a good pick. I was really worried about whether I would be able to talk about this movie properly because I feel like there's so much going on, and it's such a different movie. I'm like, I don't know if I have the words to just. I didn't take very many notes. I I run into that all I'm, the time. I'm just like, I don't know if I if I can even really get my head around uh, this weird movie enough to to talk about it. And I'm still not sure I did. I but, I, uh, I think we were coherent, I, but I don't know if our audience <laughs> yeah, Let that. us know if I just sounded like I was talking in circles the whole time. Um, let's move on to shout-outs. What do you got? What do you got this week, Oz? Uh, I'm shouting out... A woodworker on TikTok who goes by the name, the at JD is Justin. Uh, And I found his profile because he is doing a series of wood carvings where he makes a map of the United States out of wood from each state tree. And so he does a separate video for each state. Uh, and he explains the history of this tree, kind of the remedies, like, oh, the bark or the sap has been used as this, and how did they pick their state tree? Uh, all sorts of really interesting stuff, and then... Is this the same guy, the Jew who loves trees? 
Uh, no. Or is that a different guy? That's a different guy. That guy's awesome, though, too. He is awesome. There's a lot of tree content there, on TikTok. There's a lot of nature content on TikTok, honestly. Uh, overall. I, I think I've found a lot of hikers that, and a lot of, like, specific botany kind of stuff on there. That, like that. That speaks very much to our personal interests <laughs> being reflected, but <laughs> Could yes. be, yeah. Uh, so, I thought his account was really cool, because uh, he's got that series going and a few others, but... Uh, I'm really excited to see him finish this map of the U.S. He hasn't done Florida yet, so I'm waiting for him to do our state tree. But uh, he's just seeing if we'll be underwater if uh, if we have to change our. <laughs> he won't even have to do our it. state tree to be underwater. So what are you shouting out? I am gonna shout out uh, something for the guitar nerds this week. Um, this is a YouTube channel. It's called Five Watt World, and a lot of what I like to watch on here are short history videos he does the short history of the les paul the short history of the telecaster he takes these these big kind of iconic uh guitars and he breaks down this is this is where it started this is the guy who designed it this is um you know when it got more popular this is when it got discontinued this is who played it that made it famous you know like and here's the changes they made in the 70s and this and that. It's real nerd stuff. But if you're into it, I think he makes really good comprehensive videos. He does live stuff on there too and has a lot of other like side um, uh, technical stuff. But I think it's a really good channel and, and he does really good sort of video essays on the history of this really niche thing. Well, I think that's what's cool about nerd stuff yeah. it's like when you see someone geek out about something niche but intensely passionate about it like you get a really in-depth history of it right. like and you learn why do they like it what makes it cool and well and it's it's also just it speaks to the internet in general that if you're into some niche thing you can find things about it it's not you know you don't have to go looking very far what Whatever you're into, trees, you know, we're just talking about. You can find people who just talk about trees. There's a community about, for you everything. Know, beekeeping. There's beekeeper videos and bee, beekeeping YouTube channels and stuff like that. Like, I'm on paper making TikTok. Dude, that, people that's making a, paper. That's the thing. I, you talk to our friend Amy Frost because she knows how to make paper. And someday I'm going to get her to make paper to send to me so I can draw on it hell and yeah. send it back to her. Um, but, uh, I've, I've never drawn on homemade paper before or handmade paper. I don't even know what you call it, but it's just, it's such a cool concept. The idea that you can make your own paper. Yeah. But you want to know about making paper? I bet you Amy Frost can point you in a couple directions for, for paper making. There you go. That's like a free third shout out right there. There you go. Amy Frost, podcaster, crafter, paper maker. Paper maker. (laughs) (laughs) on that note i'm gonna just say thank you for listening to this episode of the picture show with austin and phil rude if you enjoy our show please leave a review on your podcatcher of choice it helps our visibility it helps us grow the show and only leave that review if it's a good one yeah please also please another way to help us grow tell a friend or even give birth to someone gonna, with the sole <laughs> purpose of listening to our podcast 
and driving up our numbers. Lady bleeding ears. <laughs> That'll be it. Austin, you have the wheel next week. What are we watching? I do have the wheel. Uh, we are watching a Turkish film. Whoa! Uh, called Miracle in Cell Number Seven. Uh, it's a drama that I've seen once before, and it is so good, and I wanted to revisit it. Is this a Turkish prison movie? It is. Like Midnight Express? It's, it's about a man who's been wrongfully accused and his beautiful relationship with his daughter, and it's a really sweet movie. Hmm. And, uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to it. A heartwarming Turkish prison film. That's it. That's really interesting. And if you want to watch along with us, do not get confused for the Korean show that it is based off of. Oh. This is the 2019 film Squid Games on Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> it's called Miracle in Cell Number 7. Miracle in Cell Number 7, the Turkish film on Netflix. Correct. Okay. All right. Well, uh I've never heard of that, the movie or the show, so totally new to me. I have no expectation. Looking forward to it. All right, going in blind. Uh, yeah, this is kind of that's kind of fun to do sometimes. It is. We'll, we'll see. You'll yeah. be like, "Oh my god, Austin, why'd you make what me is watch this?" this? <laughs> All right, Austin, what's your social media? Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm Austin and Rude and Old Who Review. Old Who Review? Do you talk about old Doctor Who episodes? I, you know, sometimes I do actually. Oh, yeah, you should uh, do that. Uh, I am at Phil Rude on Twitter at Phil Rude seventy five. On Instagram, philrude.com. Uh, you can get all our episodes there. And ko-fi.com slash philrude to buy me a coffee. That's right. Or buy yourself a book. Uh, Austin, you want to read the credits? Yep. We did it all ourselves. Well, there you have it. We'll see you next time on The Picture Show. See ya. <laughs>